Welcome to Connected Intelligence, a podcast about all the things we bring to work that aren't actually about the work. Join us in conversation about the building blocks that bring complex ideas to life. Not the code, calculations, or research, but the bonds between teammates, connection to your purpose, and the character that you build along the way. I'm Sonia Senek, the host of Connected Intelligence. Today, we are joined by Nick Eaves. Nick is the Chief Venues and Operations Officer at Maple Leaf Sports and Entertainment. He joined MLSC in 2016. He's responsible for overseeing operations, food and beverage, capital projects, development functions at all MLSC venues. He has oversight of MLSC's live division that brings hundreds of world-class music and entertainment events to its venues each year, including Justin Bieber. Nick is a veteran of the sports and entertainment industry. He came to MLSE from Woodbine Entertainment Group, where he served as president and CEO from 2010 to 2015. We get a chance to talk to Nick about his growth trajectory throughout his career and the role that mentorship played in it. We also talk about high pressure scenarios, such as championship basketball teams, managing a sports venue through the pandemic, and how to manage a fan experience when you can't actually bring anyone into your venue. Nick talks about the impact on his team, his employees, how people supported each other. Please enjoy our conversation with Nick Eves. For you have very specific expertise. Would you mind sharing what is involved in your role as Chief Venues and Operations Officer at MLSE? Yeah, these days, not much or completely out of the ordinary, but maybe we'll kind of go back to more normal times. That might be a little yes. more interesting. Um, yeah, so I mean, I MLSC's uh, structure and model is is unique in that we own all of the content, which is the sports teams, and all of the venues, which is the arenas and stadiums that those teams play at. So, so there, some some of you may be fans, but MLSC owns the, the Maple Leafs, the Raptors, TFC, uh, and the Argos, and then each of those professional teams, with the exception of the Argos, has a, a development uh, team in one of the development leagues. So, running the sort of call it day to day or night to night event flow uh, for all of our sports events uh, my team does uh, we also are lucky to have um, again in normal times 100 plus 120 plus concerts at Scotiabank Arena um, most of those come through a partnership that we have with Live Nation and um, you know fun stats so Scotiabank Arena is the busiest arena in Canada you'd expect that uh, generally it's the fourth busiest arena in North America so that's wow. a little bit more surprising for some uh, and it you know bounces around year to year, but it's it's usually the tenth or eleventh busiest arena in the world. So we're pretty proud of that, and we can't get we can't wait to get back to busy. To be honest with you, it's incredible. Speaking of that kind of growth and scale, prior to being the MLC, I mentioned your role as president and CEO at Woodbine Entertainment Group. Mm-hmm. You spent twenty years with with that company. I'm imagining many different roles, many different steps. Do you have a few mm-hmm. TSN turning point moments um, before becoming the chief venues operations officer at MLSC? Uh, that took you through on that journey? Yeah, probably a bunch because I literally, um, my, 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 you know, sort of my entire career before MLSC was spent at Woodbine Entertainment Group. I started there as a marketing manager and I didn't, I mean, I had no particular career aspirations at the point. I mean, I get a lot of people asking me sort of the path to get into the sports and entertainment business because a lot of people just, you know, they love sports and entertainment and they can't imagine anything better than working in it. (laughs) So I get that. I had no designs. I had no intention of working in the sports and entertainment uh, business. I just had a person I'd worked with uh, previously who was working at Woodbine, who, you know, had a cool role that I sort of fell into. So, but I thought, you know, because of that, I didn't think I'd be, I thought I would do that role. I was 20, 
five or six, I think. So I figured I'd do it for a year, probably move on somewhere else, something else, get some good experience. Um, and I was just really lucky because, you know, the, the, the horse racing industry is one that's constantly going through change. It's sort of certainly on the margins as opposed to, you know, the mainstream businesses like the ones MLSE owns. So we were constantly in sort of reimagination mode and survival mode and, and sort of, you know, so uh, it was actually, it was a ton of fun. And, and I, I, you know, for me, the real sort of an early TSN turning point was the, uh, the CEO who preceded me uh, was was sort of a real entrepreneurial sort. And, uh, you know, cause horse racing as an industry is very traditional and it's made up of people who have sort of spent a lifetime in it, which was not me. Uh, but this CEO, David Wilmot's name became a real mentor. And whenever there was a new project or opportunity or idea, um, he'd look to me to, to try and get it off the ground. And, you know, most of the times it worked and, and that was great. Occasionally it didn't. And that was a bit of a setback, but, um, you know, but, but having somebody trust in me early uh, was something that I, benefited from and, and trust is a couple you know it's a combination of being a little bit lucky to be in the right place at the right time but then taking full advantage of that of that sort of luck and opportunity so um over 20 years across multiple different roles from marketing to business development to operations i became the present chief operating officer for five and then my, my last five were as ceo as you said sonia so I, I feel like I did. I mean, it's a that's it's a big business. I feel like I did every job in that business, which after 20 years, you probably should be able to say that. But, <laughs> but there were a lot of turning points along that journey for sure. And how soon into your relationship as well with David, you mentioned that trust that you built with him mm-hmm. in him mentoring you. How soon into that relationship did you know, did you recognize, wow, this is a really unique opportunity for me to learn from somebody and you know, you know, step into some of the opportunities he's giving me? How, how did you rec- identify that? Um, so I, I certainly recognized it early and it was obvious because you've seen this in, in great leaders, they, great leaders empower the people working around them. And, and generally speaking, you're only going to empower that person if you, if you, if you trust the person and that doesn't, you don't have to have complete trust. You just have to have enough, enough trust to, to, you know, go with your instinct that it's probably a good decision. So I was lucky that he did that early and often. And as I said, you know, more, more, more often than not, the trust was well-placed and, and the, the outcome or the result was what was intended. And then obviously from time to time, the outcome was not what was, what was intended. And, and we learned from that. Um, and that, that's what I really respected. I mean, you know, when, when you do, when you do something properly, you kind of get, you sort of expect to get recognized. When you do something not quite so properly, it's, it's a little bit less clear how that's going to go. And uh, there was always learning. And, and David, in this case, was always certain to make sure that we kind of took those learnings into whatever, whatever came next. So, um, so I was really lucky to have that type of an influence early, uh, early in my career. Yeah, that freedom, it sounds like that freedom to make mistakes as well. And that's even uh, very relevant in high pressure situations, which, Mm -hmm. you know, you mentioned people are so passionate about the brands that MLSC has ownership on and the Rafters or the Maple Leafs or TFC, the Argos, part of the heart and soul of many Canadian homes Mm -hmm. um, or people at home or abroad. Um, And I'm just wondering, given that every guest experience is so important what are some of the pillars of your leadership or management style that you use to support the level of consistent excellence on your team? Um, knowing that not everything's always going to work out or go exactly the way you planned. How, how do you lead that team under that pressure? I mean, it'll sound a little bit <clears throat> trite, but it, it's, it's just, it's always just about the people. I mean, when it's all said and done, we're just in the people business. We've got a lot of people who work with us, who are serving a lot of people who like to come into our buildings to watch our teams. And, um, you know, obviously, fans want to see teams win 
uh, and you want your you want your meal to be good, and you you'd wish that the beer was a little bit cheaper. But <laughs> when it's all said and done, it's sort of the it's the individual interaction between between the people, between employees and fans, etc. And we really try and build that culture of really just delivering kind of the ultimate fan experience. And it sounds trite, but we can't control whether or not it's going to be a great game. We can't control how good the concert is. Certainly our jobs are way easier uh, when all that's good. So you know, when teams are winning championships and, and when, you know, when, when Bieber knocks it out, that's, you know, it, we almost can't do any wrong, but a lot of times, uh, it, you know, not a lot of all, every time it's about a lot more than that. And the better the, um, the, the better the engagement between the employee and the fan, whether it's just getting them excited about the event that's about to start, whether it's dealing with an issue in the moment, wh whatever it is, we're all people and human nature is such that your experience is going to be enhanced if the experience involves a bunch of positive interactions with, with other yes. people. So, so that's what we try and just instill, right? We can't, it's not going to be perfection every time be great if it was but it's not going to be perfection every time what what each of us can do and there's about a thousand people who would work you know a big event at Scotiabank Arena at night from yeah. security to the ticket taker to the concession stand the bartender the server etc um so there are a thousand people who can make you know multiple impressions with with one or more of the 19,000 fans who come into our building and that's really what we try and and uh, and impress upon people and and you know it, it's not a bit it's not one person's job to make that amazing it's it's everybody's job and, and with, whether you're the concession attendant or the chief operating officer or whatever we're all there just to make the fans experience the best it can possibly be uh, and how are we going to do that differently and creatively um every night and, and then ultimately as consistently as we can so honing in on the raptors championship year in 2019 did you feel that there was a shift in expectations or demands on you and your team like sort of beyond the, of course, the season extending longer than it ever has. Um, what were some of the ways that it was different and what skills or tools did you use as a leader to guide your team through that very exciting time? Yeah, it's, it's, it was almost, I mean, it, it was different for sure. It's easier when they're winning, honestly, it's, <laughs> it's most difficult when the results aren't very good yeah. because obviously, you know, fans don't like that. That's not what, what a fan's paying a lot of money to come and see. And the employee doesn't want that either, right? I mean, it's, there's no good coming out of a loss or, or, or repeated losses. So to be honest, you know, sort of championship seasons and playoffs and like, I mean, that's the, that's the easiest gig going. Like we could screw it up every night and nobody, <laughs> nobody would care. So, so that's kind of the sort of the deal. It's actually easiest when, you know, through those moments because fans are happy almost no matter what. It doesn't take much to get employees amped up for a night at the arena because the the energy is just spectacular um so no that's the that, that's the that's the easy stuff it's a it's a preseason game when somebody doesn't think the team's very good and the building's half full that's that's the tough time for sure and they say it's really plain to that point that winning is contagious that winning energy just seems to be everywhere and for it sounds sure. like that was a real joy oh my gosh did it for sure and then the opposite of course is that losing, you know, losing's just, you know, it's the worst, right? So, and one thing, you know, uh, one thing that's somewhat unique about MLSE is most people who work there, work there A, because they have to work, but, but also they can really relate to the content and they wanna choose, they want, they wanna choose work that's in an area that is of interest to them. So for the most part, and this is a great, this is part of the really 
amazing sort of you know kind of recipe that that our organization has people care right so if our teams are are losing then our then our employees are unhappy about that and it's yeah. hard it's, it's more difficult to bring yourself and bring your best and and sort of rise above that to use every sort of cliche um when things aren't going very well right because you're, sure. you're actually feeling just as lousy about it as the fans so speaking of sort of that championship you know experience do you remember, or did you, would you care to share sort of how you celebrated when the Raptors won? Do you remember what you did or yeah. with your, with your team as well? Like, was that, what was that experience like? Who doesn't remember where they were when the Raptors <laughs> won the championship? So, so I, I mean, here's, here's one of the, per, here's one of the perks of the gig. I could have gone to San Francisco for game six. As you might remember, we all thought we were going to win game five. So that wasn't so fun. We did um, all think that. Yes. Yeah. I, I was lucky enough to be in San Francisco for games three and four Raptors won them both. So that was amazing. And then we and then a, we were going to go back to San Francisco for game six. Most of my senior colleagues went and, and I decided that even though it's an away game, if we win the arena and Jurassic Park and the city, like it's just going to be it's going to be <laughs> wild. Right. So so I decided to stay back, not to sound overly benevolent, but I decided to stay back, as did our CFO, who obviously I work closely with. And she and I and our spouses and some friends watched the game at Real Sports, uh, the sports bar, which is adjacent to Scotiabank Arena, right next to Jurassic Park. So uh, it was a phenomenal game, pretty obvious, sort of as deep into the fourth that we were going to win. So um, so Real Sports is just getting unhinged. And actually, we, were, we had already planned uh, to renovate Real Sports uh, in the offseason. So it didn't matter what happened in that bar <laughs> night. It was all getting renovated. So so a few of us knew that and we took that ethos into the into the celebration we you know we had we had raptors championship gear uh, it was it was kind of like being on the floor of the of the arena like the hats were out and the t-shirts were out and we a bunch of us went out into jurassic park and celebrated in jurassic park it was just honestly it was spectacular and i must say i was so glad i was in toronto jurassic mm -hmm. park celebrating than being at what was the time chase arena or whatever it's called and in Oakland, like that, that would have been cool, but I was so much happier to be home with our with our Raptors fans. Yeah, that energy lasted like months here in in, in Canada. It's just amazing. Yeah. Well, the parade topped it off. The parade was better than Game Game Six. <laughs> the parade was astonishingly huge. I, I, did you anticipate it would be as big as it was? No. <laughs> no. We you know we knew it would be big, but we mm -hmm. didn't think it was going to be three million people big um and obviously we and the city and emergency services and it didn't plan how, how can you can't plan for that no. i don't think um so it was you know it, it was mostly safe i mean there was one unfortunate incident which people might remember but it was mm -hmm. it was remarkably safe and it was just i mean it was spectacular right it was a five-hour parade that people would have been just as happy if it was 10 hours like it was just it was like one of those moments um if you're a fan and because the Raptors are what they are, because of the sort of the brand of the team, and because they're as relatable as they are, they're, they're Canada's team, not just Toronto's team. It's sort yep. of a, a team made up of family, at least that championship team was. So, so, so many people could relate to it, right? Which is why yeah. the parade was so big, which was why the celebration didn't end. Um, yeah, that was, that'd be fun to do that again. So I'm going to take a hard pivot uh, in this next question, moving from a championship year to within you know, 12 months of that time, you're managing through a pandemic. Uh, your team, of course, supports some of the most popular in-person events in the country and in North America. 
Um, what was your first set of priorities when you started to contemplate a modified season at Scotiabank Arena, potentially games without fans or no games at all? How were you working through your priorities at that time? Well, the, the, the first issue was just, I mean, we've got 4,000 part-time hourly employees whose livelihoods in part depend on the work that they get at the arena. Most of them have other full-time jobs, not all. But the first issue was, how do we, you know, and, and none of us thought that we would be having this conversation in January of 2022, and it would still be a thing. So this was in March of 2020, we were thinking this is a few weeks of sort of upheaval. So, so to be honest, the first attention went to how do we bridge these employees and make sure that we can, um, you know, get continue to pay them for a period of time, which ended up being about a month, even though we have no events, even though we're not opening our doors. So I'm really proud that sort of, um, you know, issue number one was how do we try and how do we look after, how do we look after people? How do we look after employees? And, you know, we didn't, couldn't do it forever, but I'm proud that we did it for a month at a time when we weren't making any money at all. And at least that allowed, it bought people a little bit of time to figure out what might come next. So that was, that was the first thing that we did. And I'm really super proud of that. And then the next thing we did, well, obviously was try to figure out what the heck is going on, right? Yeah. And what's it going to look like? And, and we went from, you know, really not having any part of our business regulated, which we, we still don't, to having every conversation was either with a government official or a public health official. And we're all trying to figure out, you know, what the, what the roadmap looks like. So, and it was sort of forced everybody into a series of innovations. Um, yeah. what type, and, and you got, I mean, for, for your team, Jennifer and your team as well, what types of innovations have you developed over the last two years? Are there any that stand out to you um, as really significant changes in the way you do things? Uh, yeah, I mean, I would say, I mean, because we, um, you know, events were postponed, some were canceled, and then most were played either in other markets or in buildings with no fans. So the main innovation that we obviously had to accelerate was how to sort of really make more compelling the digital offering of yeah. a Leafs game, a Raptors game, a, a TFC game. So, you know, that wasn't my group so much, but our digital labs team really accelerated the, you know, the digital arena that had been under development. But one of the things the pand pandemic did was it forced a super acceleration of ideas and development that that might have that that was underway. In our case, the thought was there in the early stages of sort of being mapping it out, we were there, but we just had to go. Like no, no, yeah. no time to think and plan and 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 have a couple more committees running through the. We just have to go and build. So we did that. We, Hamza's team uh, built out this digital arena, which was really a you know the complement to Leafs and Raptors and and TFC games. It brought in you know different cool camera angles and stats and 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 sort of you know in-game virtual meetups and, and yeah. stuff like that. So. So we had to do that. We had to we had to embrace um, you know the whole NFT craze, and, okay. and we we built out our own proprietary NFT uh, platform. And you know, frankly, one of the innovations that I'm um, really proud of was the one that we partnered with you and the team on, Sonia. Was just the whole how are we going to keep employees safe during this sort of uncertain time? And, and again, I was thinking months, not years, but here we are. Yeah. <laughs> so you know, we were lucky enough to sort of be early on in, 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 in obviously CDL's idea around, you know, sort of what, what obviously kind of ideal ultimately became at home rapid testing, but obviously yes. before that, it was trying to figure out a bunch of employee, a bunch of companies who needed to get back to business and were intent on doing that in a way that kept their employees safe. And um, to me, even though we're not going to be in the rapid testing business forever, fingers crossed, we are going to be in the how do we put our employees first business kind of forever, right? And and 
you know, I, that to me was a, you know, it was a terrible example because it, it's sort of moment in time, but it's a great example that we, that Jennifer and I and others look back at with real pride and say, even though all of this was insane and none of us really knew kind of what was happening around us, we knew that it, by virtue of participation, you know, in, in the consortium, at least we were taking that extra level of safety and, and we could feel pretty good about that. So, so that's doubt. another yeah, and I want to mention that not only was MLSC one of the 12 founding members of the CDL RSC, but you were actually the first organization that made it mandatory for entry yeah. to screen mm-hmm. everybody, everybody, no matter whether you'd been there the day before. Yeah. Um, and that was at the time, we didn't know how your employee base would react. And as soon as you did that, and, and the response was really positive, people felt safer, then you saw this domino effect of all these other organizations sort of doing requirement for entry and setting up the the rapid screening station. So just a huge shout out to yourself and Jennifer and the whole MLSC team for embracing that type of an innovation, which was so new at the time. Yeah. And to be honest, it was equal parts. It, it, it was, it felt like the right thing as an employer to keep an employee safe. So that, so it genuinely, that's what drove it. And then the other half of it was we knew we weren't going to be like our 20,000 person stuff wasn't going to be happening unless we could take, take whatever, whatever was available to show that we were, we were availing ourselves of every possible safety measure. We knew we had to grab. Right. So, so it was the right thing to do. And in our business, it was, we knew it was going to be the only thing that was going to bulletproof us, which it didn't end up doing, did it, but it, uh, it, it partially bulletproofed us for a period of time and hopefully we'll be back soon. Okay. Last question here. Sports are generally very ripe with amazing catchphrases or motivational quotes. Um, I'm curious to know what is the best advice that you've ever received? The, um, the best advice that I've received, and, and not through a, through a catchphrase, but more just as I, I had the really great fortune of, you know, sort of developing and, and being promoted at a relatively young age. So I was, I was president chief operating officer uh, at 36 or something like that. And then I was CEO at 40 or 41. So that, you know, that, so I was really lucky, um, you know, earned some trust, found my place, uh, you know, the right place at the right time. But early advice I got was to not lose touch with the, you know, kind of the call it the day-to-day of the business, which as you get more senior, you can't. So, so I kind of remembered that and, and had a couple of kind of experiences early on where I did lose touch because I thought, all, you know, this really important stuff that I was doing was more important than, than keeping touch with the, you know, the critical day-to-day operations thing. And it's so true for me anyway. I think you're a much more effective leader if you can really relate to what's happening on the ground. And it sounds obvious, like, of course, of course. Yeah. But it's also so easy to get detached when you've got everything that goes with being a senior leader. And um, so I find I'm more effective, again, in, this is in normal times, I'm a lot more effective when I'm spending more of my time in the business, in the operations, on the ground, with right. our people. Um, and when I, when I sort of get distracted from that, I, I begin to realize it. it takes me a while because I'm, you know, I'm, not the, I'm not the smartest, but I, I, I realize that ultimately, you know, the, the more time you, you, you are spending away from the core kind of day-to-day deliverables of your business, you're not, that's not going to serve you well. Um, And I think it's, I think it's fairly typical of a leader, the more, the more senior they become to spend less time in the middle of it and more time around it. And I, I just think that that's dangerous. Welcome to the debrief, the meeting after the meeting. We're joined by your host, Sonia Senek, and a couple of her friends from work, Joanne D'Angelo, 
Amar Kaur, and me, Elizabeth Chim. Sonia, please start. Give me the cue. Hello. Hey, Sonia. Hello there. Hi, Sonia. Hello, Amar. Hello, Elizabeth. Hello, Joanne. In reverse order. <laughs> so how much did you miss sports during the pandemic? Like, they're already coming back, but I know it was a big deal for you, Sonia. It was just an adjustment to a lifelong habit. You know, I when I was a kid, I would wake up and would read the sports page. Like, it's the only thing I would read. It was like all the results. A lifelong habit. I would say it's strange. Yeah, for sure. Especially because your second career is a sports commentator. Yeah. Sports announcer, yeah. At the Olympics. Yeah. At the Olympics in 2010. In 2010, but also if there's a future Olympics, I could do any sport. I really feel like I could make up something to say about almost like the monobob. I thought that was a haircut. The monobob. That's, yeah. a, that's one person in a bobsled. Oh, one person. Okay, that makes sense. <laughs> yeah. So Nick said something interesting about how he never really wanted to work in sports entertainment. It was never part of the plan. It just kind of became that way. And it's very sought after industry. I think a lot of people would love to work in that. Oh, yeah. So us all as coworkers, we technically work all in the same industry. Is this kind of where you thought you would be? Or was there something else that you wanted to do? Obviously, Sonia did want to work in the sports industry. I want to, yeah, obviously a radio announcer or Olympic announcer, but I think I feel like I could be in any industry. I know that sounds like a non-answer, but it's true. I build things and I love being on teams and we could genuinely be doing anything as long as you're connected in, having a good time, any type of industry and be happy. That's so fun. I think for me, um, when I started undergrad, it was the uh, doctor dream because uh, that's all I grew up with. Um, Dr. Amar. Dr. Amar. That would have been, that would have been the thing. And both Dr. Amar, medicine woman. That's remember Dr. Quinn, medicine woman. Yeah. Do you remember that show? Does anyone remember that show? Yes. (laughs) Elizabeth, what about you? You've had a couple pivots. So when I was young, I loved animals, still do. And I've always wanted to work in the pet care industry. And I actually did that, but Kind of what I've learned, and this is echoing what Nick was saying about how important people are, is that it doesn't really matter your industry. It matters about the kind of connections you make. And I feel like either it was the industry or that specific workplace, I just never found the connections I was looking for. Was the team mostly animals? (laughs) (laughs) I'm talking about the people involved. (laughs) The, The animal team was fantastic. But um, yeah, just I think if you find people that you gel with in any kind of industry, I think that's more important than the subject matter. I second that. Yeah, I agree. It's true. The people you work with make a big difference. I'll tell you what I wasn't meant to be. Please. An usher. Explain why. (laughs) So when, you know, I sort of thought about that when Nick, Nick talked about you know, things don't always work out as planned. So we were given specific instructions. It was, I worked at Roy Thompson Hall briefly. And we were told, I was told to guard this door when the patrons came out. And no matter what, do not let anyone through this door. I'm like, you got it. I'm already picturing the antelope. I'm picturing Lion King and the antelope. 
and Mufasa. Like I'm picturing that whole event. Joanne, please keep us. Keep- so please understand, this is probably like my second week on the job. <laughs> so I don't know everyone. And so this older distinguished woman comes who's being accompanied by like that look like bodyguards and of course I step in front and I was like you can't get out this door right you have the most authority in the situation turns out and just from the reaction so she didn't really react but I could hear my uh, other partner friend uh gasp <laughs> and I knew I made a mistake I don't know why it turns out it was the owner of our Thompson <laughs> Joanne, you shall not pass. Yeah, so I just looked at my friend's reaction. I'm like, I think you can go. (laughs) Um, Okay, I'm going to ask the question because I was not a Raptors fan the night of the championship. But you asked. Are you uh, confessing currently? I'm confessing that I went home and slept after CDL Super Session 2019, the night of the Raptors championship. But what did you guys do the night of the Raptors? Oh, I probably did the same thing. Honestly, that was an exhausting week. I feel like this isn't a good thread. Like I was, I was so happy. in a coma. I was yeah. so happy for Toronto, but I was in Toronto for that. So one of my best friends, she took off work early and secured a spot at a nice restaurant right by the TV. She was there since like 2 p.m. <laughs> trying to keep the spot. The server hated her. She kept trying to text friends and be like, can someone come sit with me and order a couple drinks just so they Does don't Does anyone want out? bruschetta? Somebody come order bruschetta. <laughs> and so I show up at like 7 p.m. <laughs> <laughs> and we watched the championship there and then afterwards just ran throughout the streets of Toronto and it was amazing. I saw a man on a bus. I saw several men on poles. So you mean physically on top of the bus? Because I feel like yes. seeing a man on the bus isn't, yeah. Yeah, and the pole is outside. The yeah, it is outside <laughs> of an actual structure. Yeah.